This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the topic for um, today's talk, the title of the talk today is Modern Buddhism. And um, I would imagine some of you, if not all of you, have sometimes reflected on the question, what does it mean to be a practicing Buddhist in today's time and place? Or if you don't identify with uh, if you don't identify yourselves as Buddhists, um, what does it mean to me to be influenced by this tradition known as Buddhism that's been around for thousands of years and is now taking root in the soil of our Western culture? These kinds of questions are... Um, appropriate for you to think about in terms of the next few months. What does Buddhism mean to you, in, in, for you in this life? What does it mean to practice in this particular Sangha? So this um, talk today, I guess, is um, I'm trying to put into summary form, um, what I've kind of, my own, my own personal understanding of modern Buddhism. So it's just my own personal understanding. There'd be a lot of different perspectives on this, obviously. So this talk continues the discussion from last fortnight about moving from traditional Buddhism, what I call the salvation model, to modern Buddhism, or what I call the human flourishing model. In this talk, I will review how modern Buddhism is reinterpreting some traditional core Buddhist beliefs. We have to remember that traditional Buddhism was embedded in Indian philosophy, culture, and religion, ancient India. The salvation model was appropriate for the people living in those times. In the same way that we take it for granted that the earth revolves around the sun, they would have taken rebirth for granted it would not simply not have been something that would have been questioned by the majority of the people. In the same way that we don't question that the earth revolves around the sun. The following beliefs from the salvation model are therefore given a new interpretation in the modern Buddhist paradigm developed for people living in our culture and in our times. We will be revising the following traditional beliefs. A, rebirth and karma. B, anatman and nirvana. Anatman is the negation of atman, which means self, with a capital S. Anatman therefore means no self. And C, Attitudes towards impermanence, beauty, and sensuality. So we'll start with rebirth and karma. 
So in the salvation model, the belief in rebirth is inseparable from the belief in karma. People are reborn into samsara, the repetitive cycle of birth and death known as the wheel of existence. Karma is about actions and the consequences of actions. In the salvation model, beneficial and meritorious actions are rewarded with a favorable rebirth, leading eventually after many lifetimes to Nirvana. In traditional Buddhism, the person is reborn again because of what is called in Pali tanha, which is often translated as craving. But this is not seen as desirable outcome. It is not good news that we are reborn. Hence, to accomplish nirvana was to succeed in getting off the wheel of samsara. The word nirvana literally means the blowing out or the extinguishment of craving. And hence, release from the cycle of samsara. Now, in those days, unless one had the good fortune to be born into the aristocracy or the priestly Brahmin caste, life in ancient India could be short and brutal. It made sense to view liberation as freedom from this life. However, because of the standard of living we now enjoy, this view really does not make much sense for us folk with the good fortune of being born in advanced capitalist economies where we can enjoy or expect to enjoy an average life of maybe 85 years or more enjoying good health. So in modern Buddhism, rebirth is reinterpreted as a metaphor One of the ways that's often talked about is a metaphor for being caught in the endless cycle or repetition of reactive patterns that maintain our suffering. The concept of karma is maintained, but freed from the notion of rebirth in the next life. Actions still result in consequences. What we think and believe will still influence how we act and how we act will still influence what we experience in the future. Breaking patterns is understood on both an individual and communal level of responsibility. In the modern version, there is also acknowledgement of randomness and unpredictability in our lives, starting importantly with birth. It is not a level playing field. By the accident of birth, some folk are born into affluent nations, others are born into poorer nations. Even within nation-states, it's not a level playing field. Poverty can be seen as a form of violence. Racism is also a form of violence. In modern Buddhism, the recognition of the existence of intergenerational trauma adds an extra dimension to our understanding of karma. So in modern Buddhism, we don't believe people are born into poverty or traumatic circumstances because of misdeeds in a previous life. For example, being born into an Aboriginal family in Australia is random. 
the child inherits the history of intergenerational trauma. Indeed, all Australians inherit the legacy of intergenerational trauma caused by the invasion and the systematic policies of genocide of the First Nations people, language and culture. It therefore becomes a responsibility of all Australians to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma wreaked upon our First Nations people. This needs to be addressed at both the individual level and at the social cultural level. So in modern Buddhism, the analysis of intergenerational trauma and the need for a socially engaged Buddhism replaces the notion of reward and punishment metaphysics found in the salvation model. We are all responsible for each other's welfare and for creating a better world for the next generation to inherit. This also, of course, applies to global poverty, climate justice, and the forms of discrimination. <clears throat> now I'd like to move on to Anatman and Nirvana. In traditional Indian metaphysics, the Atman, the self with a capital S, was regarded as the reality that lay behind the illusory appearance of change in the phenomenal world. The Atman was seen as being permanent, eternal, substantial, and impartite, undivided. It was the referent for the spiritual question, who am I? This teaching is also found in contemporary Avaita Vedanta, teachers such as Rupert Spira. The meaning of Avaita simply is not to. This metaphysic can also be found in ancient Greek philosophy. The pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides said, that which is never ceases to be that which is not never comes into being. Now it may be true, as Rupert Spira argues, that the discovery of all the great spiritual traditions is that the fundamental nature of each one of us is identical with the fundamental nature of the universe. But the way, in which this un the way in which this is understood and the path of liberation that is taught in alternative spiritual traditions differs in fundamental ways. For example, both traditional and modern Buddhism teach anatman, no self. In traditional Buddhism, the negation of self was the negation of self with a capital S. The middle way, as taught by the historical Buddha, repudiated both the belief in an eternal self and the belief that nothing exists. However, the belief in an Atman is no longer a culturally dominant belief system in our time and place. In modern Buddhism, the extinguishment model of Nirvana is now seen as an overly pessimistic view of the world. And hence the meaning of Nirvana needs to be reinterpreted to make it relevant to our time and place. Also, the meaning of Atman needs to be reinterpreted because this is a philosophical view we are no longer familiar with unless you are a contemporary practitioner of a Vitam. Nirvana and Anatman need to be relevant to how we live in this life. Few people in the West believe in Atman these days. 
But most of us will acknowledge that when we talk about the ego self or the soul, we are referring to the feeling or the instinct that there is a permanent and continuous subject that relates to others in the world. We are conditioned into identifying as an I that can claim ownership of internal and external objects. For example, my body, my thoughts, my car, my house, my life. This sense of an autonomous, independent and separate I is a taken for granted part of our culture in exactly the same way that the Atman used to be a taken for granted part of Indian culture. The sense of an autonomous I was reinforced in the West through the creation of private property and the development of our legal systems. The notion of being able to own land, for example, was a totally foreign concept to our First Nations people. What is more, when this sense of I, me or mine as the owner or center is challenged, it generates reactivity, which leads to suffering. So in modern Buddhism, Nirvana is now reinterpreted as freedom from repetitive reactivity, freedom from the self-centered dream. Modern Buddhism therefore takes a more psychosocial approach to the analysis of no self. Rather than challenging the Atman, which would be an easy target, modern Buddhism challenges this sense of an autonomous I as owner dash center. In both traditional and modern Buddhism, we experience the suffering of samsara because of our ignorance of the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, suffering, and no self. Of these three, it is the ignorance of the impermanence of self that plays the central role in the diagnosis of suffering. As Buddhists who follow the threefold path of ethics, meditation, and wisdom, we cultivate the intention to transform what are referred to in Buddhism as the three poisons, greed, hatred, and ignorance. Given that greed and hatred grow from the ground of ignorance, ignorance of our true nature of non-separation, our practice of the threefold path enables us to awaken to our true nature, that the self from the get-go is a relational and contextual self. And although it does provide us with a sense of autobiographical continuity, it is inherently an impermanent process, not a permanent entity. In modern Buddhism, this, this capacity to free ourselves from reactivity is called non-attachment. Similar to how in traditional Buddhism, non-attachment was seen as the way to find release from samsara. However, in modern Buddhism, this doesn't mean non-attachment in the sense in which we detach ourselves from being householders and become homeless celibate monks. It is reinterpreted as non-attachment to self-clinging. Self-clinging referring to the way in which we cling to the self as an owner or center of the world. The more we are able to free ourselves from this centered self, the less reactivity we will experience. Therefore, in modern Buddhism, one can be emotionally attached to one's intimate partner, while at the same time, dropping the feeling that we own or possess our partner. In modern Buddhism, 
It is okay to be attached to people, objects, and places, because this is seen as being beneficial to human flourishing. To not experience a secure attachment to one's parent or partner is, is um, seen in our culture to create suffering. In fact, it can be argued that a secure attachment is the best foundation for developing non-attachment in the Buddhist sense of the word. Another example of the importance of attachment to human flourishing in this world is climate change grief and the idea of heart places, how we become attached not only to our natural areas of wilderness or wildness, but also to our local beach. This form of attachment leads to caring for the environment and the recognition of the need for preservation for human flourishing and well-being. Embracing the world of impermanence, of emptiness and no self is simply recognizing our always, already non-separation from the world. Barry Majid puts it in this way, quote, awareness of emptiness is simply a non-resistance to the flow and transience of our lives. In practice, we watch where we resist letting things come and go. These nodes of resistance are what Buddhism refers to as attachment. Non-attachment is an acceptance of impermanence. Equanimity could be therefore defined as acceptance of impermanence. I now want to conclude this section with some reflections on what modern Buddhism, Buddhism may have to say about the ownership of property. In particular, let us take the ownership of real estate as our example. Modern Buddhism is understood primarily as a post-monastic practice. It is not suggested that we sell all our belongings, like Lame and Pang of old, and commence a career of begging. So, if decentering ourselves from the sense of self-ownership is one of our core practices, does the ownership of real estate hinder or help us to free ourselves from the sense of self-ownership? Does it help us to free ourselves from the self-centered dream? Can we own real estate and at the same time see through the illusion of ownership? Freeing ourselves gradually from the sense of ownership of objects being mine. I think the relationship of the ownership of private property to human flourishing is debatable. One might argue that ownership of one house is conducive to human flourishing because the attachment promotes a sense of care and well-being. One could also, I think, argue that the ownership of two houses, say a city house and a getaway house, is also conducive to human flourishing. Especially to have our mortgage paid off is conducive to peace of mind in our later years. But what about owning three houses or 10 houses or 100 houses? Where does one draw the line? Ownership is part of our taken for granted conventional reality. Therefore, it is rarely thought about or challenged. Try introducing, introducing a capital gains tax on the sale of a house and see what happens. However, I think we need to begin an exploration into how this conventional sense of ownership becomes part of our psychology, possibly leading to greed, division and hatred into the haves and the have-nots. Ownership, like the self, is a fiction, albeit a fiction with legal and monetary consequences, because in order to have property, we need an owner. Therefore, 
Ownership does not have to dominate our sense of self and other. Can we see through the fiction of ownership? Can we see clearly that there is no one really who owns anything and also nothing to be owned? And still practice caring for the dwelling in which we reside and also the dwellings in which others reside. How long can we tolerate homelessness in this country or any country? Or do we secretly see it as a moral failure of the victims of homelessness to provide for themselves? After all, we can't take our house with us when we die. Dwelling peacefully in emptiness means simply dwelling in impermanence without attachment or aversion on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Maybe it also enables us to let go of thoughts of ownership. Finally, I'd like to finish with some thoughts about impermanence, beauty, and sensual delight. In traditional Indian Buddhism, there was little appreciation of the relationship between beauty and impermanence. There was also a rejection of taking pleasure in sensual experience. This began to change somewhat in China and then Japan. In these cultures, the mystery and beauty of existence was seen in the natural world. Mist, mountains and rivers, cherry blossoms. The images of the natural world were also represented in the arts, poetry and music as supports for the practice of meditation and the cultivation of wisdom. The human figure was non-separated from this landscape. The arts, poetry and music expressed the evolution of awakened awareness, how the cosmos awakens to itself through the form of the unique biography of an individual who, through the refinement of Buddhist practice, is able to express this awakened awareness in the arts, poetry and music. In modern Buddhism, following the modernist revolution, in the same way that Chan and Zen captured the beauty of impermanence in its portrayal of nature, writers like James Joyce and Virginia Woolf captured the beauty of the transience of the self. In the same way that we can experience the beauty of the cherry blossoms, we can appreciate the beauty and impermanence of the relational and contextual self. Our practice refines our experience of self. Mindfulness of the arising of the negative emotions of greed and hatred enables us to let, go, let them go before they create harm. But our practice also enhances our capacity to feel positive emotions, such as joy, more deeply. We feel deeply the wonder of nature, but also the intimacy that arises in conversations and in silent reverie. We can treasure our memories because they are fragile and easily lost. I call this process distinguishing self-intimacy from self-ownership in the gradual transformation and refinement of our experience of self in the world. Finally, modern Buddhism seeks to reclaim our capacity to experience delight in sensual pleasure, whether that is the wonder of a sunset or sexual pleasure, or indeed the smell of toast and coffee in the morning. I will finish with a quote from Isabella Lande's latest book, The Soul of a Woman. Humans are sensual creatures. We, we vibrate in response to sounds, colors, fragrances, textures, flavors, everything that pleases our senses. We are not only moved by the beauty of a planet, but also by what we can create. I inherited from my mother the desire to adorn my house, but I am aware that nothing is permanent. Everything changes, decomposes, disintegrates, 
or dies, so I don't cling to anything. So thank you for your attention for that um, talk, a little bit longer than I wanted to go. But I just wanted to get across a, a review of those three basic core beliefs and try to give you an idea of how modern Buddhism goes about reinterpreting these beliefs. So now I'd like to open up to a um, discussion. It could be a question or you could share something or make a comment um, about the talk. Uh, so when you do so, as usual, um, just unmute yourself and say, hello, Andrew, or shake your hand or something. So sometimes I don't see people. So who would like to kick off? With a response. So, Tom, you you want to come come in? Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, great talk, Andrew. That was really good. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, I was thinking about the idea of um, of a house, um, you know, and whether that can, you know, whether one house is conducive to, um, you know, sort of understanding your place in the universe and whether a hundred houses is, you know, is not so good. Um, I think it's interesting. Even, even one house could be quite problematic. Um, I think it's, um, I've just sort of, I've been living in this, this big house for a while and now I've moved out and I'm sort of just kind of floating about like I was before, before that. Um, you know, it's interesting there, this idea, you know, it's sort of, uh, without even realizing it, you know, these, you know, these walls and this, you know, this, this environment kind of tricked me, I think, into this idea that this was some sort of almost like, um, like permanent, immortal kind of situation. It was just sort of, it was always there. It didn't change big blocks, you know, big bricks on the wall that never moved. You know what I mean? It was kind of, this is sort of it. And a lot of time passed. Um, and now it's interesting. I've come out of that and now I look in the mirror and I sort of see, I see how much time, has kind of elapsed <laughs> and it's kind of it's interesting i'm kind of going well where was i you know what was i thinking like it was just kind of uh, no i think i think it's important you, even one house a hundred houses whatever i think uh, unless you're sort of doing this kind of reflective stuff you know it might be i think it's easy to get tricked into these things it's not until your car kind of cocks it and you have to get a new one that you sort of realize that wasn't your for you know your forever car probably the same with um with like um relationships sometimes as well if you're not doing the this sort of reflective practice a lot i think it's really easy just to sort of you know, get sucked into thinking this is this is a, an eternal kind of situation without it really realizing mm. no, interesting talk though i really yeah i like the talks they're very good i agree with like all the things you say it's really um <laughs> it's nice yeah. Yeah. thanks tom that was that was well expressed and um yeah i i think it's um it's an interesting topic and um, I was really sort of interested in the question of like everything, can we hold our ownership lightly, you know, so that it doesn't become something that we are weighed down by, but maybe, maybe does provide us with the possibility of human flourishing as well. So I was trying to be careful not to um, suggest that we all have to go and sell our houses and give all our money away to the poor and, and you know, start you know walking That's down Cross Harbour carrying our begging bowls. But... That would be concerning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Okay, uh, Paul. We'll just need to unmute yourself, Paul. Mute. That's it. Is that, is that better? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Ah, okay. Hi there. Um, yeah, I just I just wanted to comment as well on the the topic, and you were talking about sort of house ownership. Um, it sort of resonates with me a little bit too, in the sense of I've I've actually never owned a house, so I'm I'm about to approach my fifties without ever having owned anything in terms of property, and I've always rented. I spent a lot of time travelling when I was younger overseas, and I've always I've always valued the sense of freedom and I've never really had a desire to own my own property. And I've had, you know, I've had people over the years ask me, you know, 
about housing and things like that. And I've always, um, I've just always felt a real sense of freedom not being attached to owning a house. And um, for me, that's, yeah, it's, I think it's a big thing, you know. Um, and, oh, I mean, there's not much I want to comment about that, just about that particular point, you know. But mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a very freeing, you know, I think it's from my experience and from people that I've known over the years, I mean, having your own home and, you know, in a, in a, in a culture like Australia, it's a real thing you know, or owning property is such a big thing. But um, there can be just a real sense of freedom when you go in a different direction and you consciously choose to stay. I mean, I've, to this day, I'm, I, I really have no intention of wanting to own my own property. And because it does perish, it is an attachment. And um, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a real sense of freedom. You know, everybody has their own histories and way they want to see the world. But, you know, for me, it's something that's just, yeah, it, 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 it's an important thing to just maintain that sense of reality. So, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. So, Great. Thank you for sharing that perspective, Paul. Very valued. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just wondering if there's someone else who'd like to share an alternative perspective about um, what ownership, uh, house ownership uh, means to them. Uh, Anne, go, go ahead. You need to just need to unmute yourself, Anne. Okay, got it. Sure. Didn't, didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> um, well, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the the house that um, my husband largely built and where. I, we had our children and grew up there, so so this is from the from the different perspective. Good. This is, um, a lovely thing to create together. You know, we chose chose the land where we wanted to build it, and um, you know, designed the place together in a way that it suit ourselves. And then uh, my husband did a, a a lot of the actual hands-on building of the home, and. Um, we lived in, you know, the half-built home for, for many a long year, as was our tradition uh, in the area. Lots of people do that. Um, yeah, and it was lovely having the, the, the children there. And, you know, like I, I can remember Ben as, as a, a, a little fella, you know, helping his dad with the saw and, and that sort of thing. Um, so that was a really warm and, and lovely place to be, yeah. And, you know... Then, then sadly, over over time, I had to, you know, let let go of that after Matt passed away and the house was bigger than I needed and um, and that sort of thing. So, so there was sadness there, but um, a little yeah. bit like a relationship, eh? And like there was joy in creating the house, yes, living yes. in the house, yes, yes. And I guess like all things that we love that we create. Um, there comes a time eventually when we have to say goodbye to it. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yes. And, um, but still, you would still have would if you had the chance to do that over again, you'd still build that house. Yes, certainly. Yeah. 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 It was it was a, a lovely thing to do, and it was a, a lovely place to to raise a family. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, um, Angie. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, I suppose, share some reflections. One of them was um, a memory I had years ago with, um, I don't know if people saw that movie, Crocodile Dundee, and the um, the um, Indigenous perspective. And there was a, he was talking to an Aboriginal fellow, um, they were talking about um, owning houses or whatever, and the Aboriginal fellow said, oh, look, it's just like um, fleas on a dog arguing about who owns the dog. And I thought that's really very, um, very accurate sort of perception, um, and I suppose quite indicative of a lot of um, of indigenous cultures. It's not, a, you know, you don't, can't own the land. It's not mm. the land is just there. And I think that's a really, um, really uh, important and special relationship um, that indigenous people have with the land. Mm. Um, and another thing that I was just wanting to, which fits in with your talk, Andrew, and that is just noticing. Um, at the present time, the effect that greed is actually having 
um, on people's well-being in terms of their in terms of shelter and accommodation. Um, and the fact that in recent time, I certainly know around here in Coffs, so many places um, have been bought up, um, which has just made the rental uh, market really impossible for a lot of people. And I know that with building the bypass, um, some companies have um, you know rented a lot of houses and even bought up houses to to um, accommodate their workers, which means that other people have nothing. And I think this is a it's a real example of what happens when there's greed um, of ownership, um, which means other people just don't have the same um, access to the basic uh, right of shelter. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a, a huge problem, um, and it's something that I'd really like to see um, yeah turned around. Great. Thanks, Anne. Thank you, Anne. Uh, Catherine and Angie and Antu, could you mute yourselves again after you've talked so we don't get any background noise? Yeah, go, um, Catherine. I've moved many times in my life, too many times to think about, but what has struck me probably in the last 10 years is how profoundly the sense of place plays to something fundamental in my life. So each time I move, and we've just moved the last few weeks again because we're renovating our other place, um, is how unsettling being in a different place is for me. Mm. Now, that's made me think a lot about my attachment, um, but also triggered a thought and something you said in your talk, Andrew, triggered um, for me as well about a beneficial attachment um, and a beneficial attachment to your sense of place. And I think there is a distinction between ownership of real estate, which is a very cultural issue in Australia for people who are able to own real estate, and it's not such a cultural issue in a number of other countries anyway where people might rent for their lives. It's just a, a cultural, cultural thing here. Um, ownership of real estate and a sense of place. And I think there, there is such a key distinction there. But often I suspect they become fused and that people will attach, have their attachment to their sense of place similarly attached to a sense of ownership. And in trying to understand it, what your thought and what other people have been saying provoked for me was the importance of distinguishing between those two things to then explore what our where we are at in terms of our sense of place and our attachments yeah yeah beautiful I, I, I think that's a really important distinction for us to hold and I think whether we own a house or rent a house we've probably all experienced some kind of attachment to place and uh, I think that's like very important. Um, I got the notion of heart places from, I think, I can't remember the name of the author. It was an author that was interviewed on the ABC a week or two ago, based down in the South Coast, I think. Um, who's written a book called Heart Places as a, um, and she started writing it before the bushfires um, about her, her own experience of climate change grief. Mm. So yeah, uh, attachment can be really beneficial in many different ways, in terms of attachment to place, to people, even to objects. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, does anybody else have anything they'd like to Sure. Tom and then Jed. So, so just a question then um, on the back of the, just these discussions about attachment. Um, so really then, I mean, looking at, sort of talking about Western psychology, I guess, um, and different attachment styles, you know, looking at and healthy attachment versus unhealthy attachment. Um, I wondering, could you sort of talk maybe a little bit about what 
what the different styles are. I, think, I, I know there's a, sort of three main styles or something like that, but I don't really understand them particularly well. Is that is that relevant to what we're talking about now? Um, whether you have, it's not so much an attachment is good, an attachment is good or bad, not attachment is good or bad, but what type of attachment and how does that function in our lives? Yeah, okay, thanks, Tom. It's a, that's a big question. We can't really cover it this morning. But, <laughs> yeah, just, ba but just basically... <laughs> The idea of a secure attachment is that um, uh, you're likely to be less clingy and anxious or less avoidant in, the, in, in terms of your relationships. You have a healthier, a healthier trust of human relationships. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, like Jed and Phil, did you want to say something, Jed? No. no I was just uh, resting my hand on my face. <laughs> okay, Phil, did you want to just say listen. something? No. Okay. Anybody else? Michael. Michael, do you want to unmute yourself or Michael? That's it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. It seems every time I press it, I repress it again later. Just saying a really fantastic talk and session this morning. So, so much in it, you know, like I'm, I, it's wonderful to hear about, uh, to have a discussion that's about kind of revising or re, re revisioning um, Buddhism in terms of, well, where are we at in 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 the in in where Buddhism is here and now in our world? Um, and and I think it's also really important to yeah to 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 draw to to continue to to deepen our understandings of self uh, and and the methodologies for working with self. Um, you know, old and modern as well. And I think Jed's question just then about attachment entirely speaks to, to that about, it's kind of like asking, well, hang on, old Buddhism talks about attachment. In what way? So how, how are we now um, wanting to talk about attachment what are the current understandings of attachment that we can bring into our new envisaging of Buddhism? So I, I hear that as an even broader thing about, well, the old understandings of self, the old understandings of how to work with self, how to break through from illusion or um, uh, deluded senses of self, well, Buddhism has worked in it in one way, uh, and now we're moving towards something more modern, more linked with psychotherapy. Um, like this is uh, ordinary mind is psycho psychotherapeutically informed Buddhism. Well, uh, I think there's lots more we can do about articulating. Um, and clarifying and perhaps bringing right into the core methodology of of what we're doing in in Zen Buddhism, um, those sort of psychotherapeutic notions of you know the genesis of self, uh, you know all those concepts of in, interrelationism, um, mutual arisings is so linked to those. Uh, modern psychotherapeutic ways of seeing the self, bringing attachment theory, and it's such a powerful theory, um, to, to really help us um, really sort of infuse, infuse those old views with, with something really contemporary, drawing, drawing the best out of current uh, knowledge and science of psychotherapy from a Western sense. So, you know, I was really excited hearing Jed ask that question. It's a big one. Um, hence, I kind of feel really, yeah, excited about where we could go with it. <laughs>
Thanks, Michael. Yeah, it is really exciting. And that was the Tom who asked that question about attachment. Um, and as, as you'd be aware, probably. Tom was. Yeah. Um, um, and this is really. Yeah, I won't uh, steal his credit. Sorry. <laughs> developing developing uh, Barry's uh, teachings. Uh, he's very strong on this and uh, in all his books. And uh, his third book on uh, Nothing is Hidden. He has a nice little chapter on Joko as well to how he really diverges from Joko Beck as well. Uh, uh, Joko once famously wrote a chapter in her first book called Relationships Don't Work. And um, she tended to have a slightly jaded, jaded take on relationships. I guess given, a, I mean, our own personal history always um, influences how we, our own biography will always influence how we teach or how we practice. And um, you know, Barry was concerned to try and uh, uh, present some of the alternatives about the positives that we can experience in relationships. Yeah. So that, that's, that's in his third book. It's a nice chapter. So um, we're almost getting towards the end of time. Maybe just uh, time enough for one more person who hasn't spoken yet. Uh, Jason. Yeah, hi, Andrew. Can you hi, hear? Jason. Welcome. Um, yeah, it's just interesting. When I lived in the Kimberley, we talk about our Indigenous uh, fellow brothers and sisters, and they still have a place that they believe if you take a desert man or a coastal man, you know, they're saltwater people or desert people. So I, I still think they also have that attachment. Um, and even our Gambungia people here, when they, they feel a sense of attachment to their, their country, yeah. And they're on their own land or where they go to another land they don't feel the same thing. So yeah. it's interesting with houses, being a homeowner, how that gives you that attachment for your family to feel safe and able to do their, their part of life as well. Hmm. It's just a sort of comment. Yeah, no, nice. No, it relates back to what Catherine was talking about, how attachment to place or attachment to country predates our notions of, of uh, legal ownership. But it, it is interesting. I was, I've had shoulder surgery, so I can slightly start to get in the water again. And this morning, I'm speaking to a real estate agent. And he says to me, "How wonderful this this area has gone up so much percent." And I said, "No, it's not. How are my kids going to be able to afford a place?" Hmm. And that's where this rental crisis is coming in. So it's sort of yeah, yeah. I don't know. Last four years, it has been agreed. You know, the greed is not a good thing. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and that's where, again, modern Buddhism comes in with the emphasis on, on this life and what the next generation is going to inherit and the generation after them is going to inherit. Yeah. And uh, we focus more on that than, you know, just totally getting off the cycle of rebirth and never coming back again. We want yeah. this planet to continue in a form which is uh, able to support human flourishing. Yeah. 